Mark chapter 6, the title of today's message is Hometown Blues. I was, I was kind of surprised at my survey results in the first service. Raise your hand if you grew up here in the area and you're, you've kind of landed here. Raise your hand if you grew up around here. All right, I think we got a few more here in the second service. I was surprised at how many, how many folks from the first service uh, didn't grow up in the area. I, di- I didn't grow up here in this community. But if you were born and raised in a small community, and you know what it's like to kind of come back there then as an adult, maybe after college or after you get out of jail, and you come back and, and, uh, and, and you're trying to adjust, there can be some challenges, right, to try to get people to look at you as you're not that snot-nosed kid running around anymore or that kid, you know, that was causing trouble on the streets of Clare. And you're, you're grown up now. You're mature. Sometimes it's hard to escape that, that perspective. You know, I still remember one of the first times I preached at a church that I had attended when I was little, and it was a kind of a, a strange thought that I'm up here preaching, and there's people out there that changed my diaper when I was a kid. It's just kind of, kind of weird. Uh, sometimes when you, um, you know, when you go back after being away from your hometown, you can get strange looks or, or they've pigeonholed you because of the way that you were at one time. I still remember when, uh, well, well, I was homeschooled up through eighth grade and uh, my parents decided to send me to public high school. And so I didn't know any, well, I knew a few kids from Little League, but I really didn't have any friends. I didn't know any of the teachers or anything and they didn't know me. But I went and I still remember uh, ninth grade. First day, uh, I had Miss Bomeister for my typing class, and apparently she had been around since the dawn of public education, and uh, everybody had had Mrs. Bomeister for, uh, whether it was on a typewriter or on a computer, they'd had her for typing class, and I still remember she was going through the roll and calling off names, and she got to my name, and she, she said, Jeremiah Ketchum, and I raised my hand, she said, you're not Mark Ketchum's boy, are you? And I said, yeah, Mark's my dad, and she said, oh. And I knew right then and there I had an uphill battle because of the reputation that had preceded me. My dad took uh, educa- his education, uh, I don't want to be nice here, but a little less than serious and was the class clown. And so I had to kind of work through some of those preconceptions. But, you know, growing up in a small town, it has its, its good points, but it also can have its, its negative points. And Jesus is going to discover that here as he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Of course, Nazareth would not... Nazareth was not the place where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem, of course. And then when Herod uh, started killing babies, trying to, to kill the king, Jesus, uh, his family fled. They were warned by an angel, you remember, and so they fled to Egypt. And so for the first couple of years of Jesus' life, the family lived in Egypt. But when they got word that the danger had passed, they came back to their hometown of Nazareth, where Jesus spent all of his growing up years. And so that's where we find Jesus in this passage. So if you've uh, found your place in Mark chapter 6, we're going to read beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? But what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he marveled because of their unbelief. And they went about among the villages teaching. So we see Jesus back in his hometown here. And he's met with a less than, than welcome celebration. They weren't cheering and, and, and giving him a, a great homecoming party. He's met with a bit of a chilly reception. And so as we think about the hometown blues, and if you're filling in the blanks in your notes, we discover that, that there's some unbelief, some serious unbelief in this community. And so as we think about unbelief and being rejected because of our faith, there are some characteristics that, I, that, that really accompany unbelief. And I, 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 uh, I found a great outline that I thought that captured well this passage by John MacArthur. And the first thought says that unbelief obscures the obvious. Unbelief obscures the obvious. If you've got, a, if you've got the walls up, if you've got your predisposition to, to reject and to be skeptical, you're going to ignore what's right in front of you. I don't know how many times I've sent my kids looking for something, and they come back within like eight seconds and say, I can't find it. I looked everywhere. It wasn't there. <laughs> and moms, you know, you walk in the room, and it takes you about a half a second, and you see it right there in the middle of their floor, right there on top of their dresser. It was right there in front of their noses all along. They, they missed the obvious. They missed what was right there. And that's what was happening in Nazareth. Jesus had been doing all these miracles. I mean, what have we been studying the last few weeks? The, the, the raging sea, the demons being cast out, the, the mighty miracles, a little girl raised from the dead, a, a woman with a 12-year chronic illness healed. And all of these things surely had come to the ears of, of Jesus' fellow townsfolk. And, but what do we find? We find them ignoring what was right in front of their nose. And meeting him with skepticism. It says when he went to the, to the, to the Sabbath, he began to teach in the, in the synagogue in verse 2. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? It was right in front of them. They were hearing with their very ears the words Jesus was speaking so powerfully. It was right there. They heard it, and it says they were even astonished. They were impressed with his teaching. And yet, they still shut it down. They still refused to believe. It was right there in front of their noses. You know, sometimes we're presented with things that are, that are so clear and plain to us. God is at work. Maybe it's a passage of Scripture that He's pressing on our hearts. And even if we're a Christian, sometimes we refuse to believe, refuse to deal with it, even though it's, it's so plain right there in black and white, so obvious that God is at work, that God is speaking. A hard heart, a skeptical heart, refuses to believe. You remember when Moses went to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4? And he challenged him. Tried to get him to, to release God's people, to set the Israelites free. And even though he performed miracles in front of Pharaoh. And then following that, there were, there were um, plagues, one after another. Acts of God that couldn't be explained any other way. That should have been obvious signs to Pharaoh. God is telling you, let the people go. It would be a really good idea to do this right now. Even after the first, second, third plague, water turning to blood, flies, locusts, death of livestock, still Pharaoh dug his heart in and, 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 and refused to listen to the message. 
Unbelief obscures the obvious. It refuses to listen. It closes up its ears. This morning, don't close your ears to God working. Don't allow skepticism, a hardness of heart, or bitterness to cloud your ability to see what God is doing in your midst. Secondly, unbelief elevates the irrelevant. Unbelief elevates the irrelevant. As you look there in verse 2, they had just heard Jesus teaching powerful things that astonished them. But what do they do? They start questioning and immediately they say, well, where does this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? See, rather than, than, than look at what's, what's, what's right in front of them and embracing Christ, they start to, to get down to the nitty gritty. They start nitpicking and, and pulling apart these little things about Jesus' ministry and about Jesus' teaching so that they lost sight of the big picture. It put the focus on the irrelevant. It put the focus on details that weren't really the, 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 the crux of the matter. Unbelief does that today too. Maybe you're sharing the gospel with somebody or maybe somebody's been sharing the gospel with you and you find all these excuses not to believe. Well, I knew this Christian one time and he was such a hypocrite. I was at this church one time, and they were crazy. They were rolling around on the floor doing wild things. I couldn't, I couldn't believe this message. Rather than looking at the message itself and embracing what Christ is teaching, you've, you've, you've taken the spotlight off that and, and found some, something little to nitpick on. And we Christians can do the same thing. Rather than coming to church to worship, maybe we come in with a negative heart, just, I didn't, I didn't like that song they sing, or the, the, they didn't have the, the type of cookie I like at snack time, or whatever it is. Uh, we, we, can, we can focus on little, little itty-bitty things and, and lose sight of the big picture of why we're here Sunday morning. We're, we're here to worship. We're here to worship. Not here to, to nitpick little small details. And, and that's what these, these people were doing. And it caused them to totally miss the message of Jesus. It caused them to totally miss out on the blessing of Christ because they elevated the irrelevant and started asking questions about, about my, the minutia of Jesus' words rather than listening and hearing and obeying. Thirdly, unbelief attacks the messenger. Unbelief attacks the messenger. In verse 3, they, they questioned. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? They listed off his brothers. And they took offense at him, the verse says. They attacked who Jesus was. They know if they can't discredit the miracles, if they can't discredit the words that he's saying, maybe they can get to his character. It's kind of what we're seeing in the, in the political realm. We always see it in an election year. Rather than emphasize your message and what your plan is for the country and your vision, it's, it's always easier to just attack your opponent and try to ride them down and try to discredit them because it makes you look better. Uh, that's the, the philosophy anyways. And that's kind of what they're doing here to Christ. They're going to come after his character, who he is. It says, isn't he the son of Mary that at the outset doesn't, doesn't maybe seem like anything derisive, except for when you realize in their context, a man was always referred to by who his father was. So if you were referring to, to Jesus, you would say, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. You would say, this is Jeremiah, the son of Mark. 
You would, you would introduce a man by the father's name, even if their father had passed away, which many scholars believe Joseph had by this point. What they were probably doing by invoking Mary's name was reminding everybody around of Mary's questionable character. You remember when she first got pregnant with Jesus, there were a lot of people who didn't buy the virgin birth thing. And, and rumors circulated, you know how things do in a small town, that Nazareth was probably only 500 people. Word had spread, Mary's pregnant. She said it was the Holy Spirit. Yeah, heard that one before. And so there, there was this reputation that probably didn't fully go away. And people probably looked down on their family and looked down on Jesus because of that. And now he's back here preaching, and there's like, oh, okay, there's that illegitimate child again. There he is, and he's going to tell us how to live. He's going to tell us he's a prophet. He's going to tell us he's speaking the words of God. Right, we know about him. We know about his family. They're attacking his character, his origins. Maybe, maybe you've been at the receiving end of that. Maybe it was something you've done. Maybe something that happened in your past. Maybe like, uh, maybe maybe it was something that you even had nothing to do with. It was came from your family and and, and and your family lineage, and it just had to do with the family you were born into. It wasn't your fault, and you're discredited. You know what it was like. Jesus knows what you feel like, because he was in the same boat. They also attacked his qualifications. He says, they said, isn't this the carpenter? <laughs> Come on. He, he's up here proclaiming to have a message from God. This guy builds stuff. He's working with his hands. How, how are we supposed to listen to him? Why, why should we pay any attention to this guy? He's just a blue-collar worker. It wasn't that they looked down on folks that would build and work with their hands and get their hands dirty and worked a nine-to-five job. The, the problem was is that they weren't, they weren't going to give them credit as a rabbi, as, as someone who could, who could instruct yeah, he's got a great job, an honorable job, but he shouldn't be teaching us the Word of God. And so they went after his, his, his qualifications. And, and this is just a side note for whatever it's worth if you're interested in this sort of thing, but the Greek word that's translated carpenter in most of our Bibles, um, it's the word tekton, and it can, it can refer to a wide variety of trades that you work with your hands. And traditionally, we've held that Jesus was a carpenter, but uh, this also can be used of stone masons. And, and many scholars believe that because of the, the, um, the lay of the land there in that day, there, there, there wasn't an abundance of wood to work with. And so very possibly, Jesus was also a skilled mason and skilled at building in a variety of ways. Uh, and, and having worked with his dad, had learned a great deal about building. They came after him. They came after who he was because they couldn't discredit the message. They couldn't explain away the miracles. You know, Jesus promises that the same thing is going to happen to his followers. He said in John 15, that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In this very next section, verses 7 through 13, Jesus is going to send the disciples out in, in groups of two as missionaries into the surrounding communities to preach the gospel. And he tells them there in those verses, he says, if a place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then 
uh, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. He's promising them that as they're going to go out, there's going to be people who don't want to hear, who, who are going to do whatever they can to discredit them, who are going to do whatever they can to persecute them. We know that, that all, but, uh, the, all but the disciple John were, were martyred for their faith. The words of Jesus were going to come true in a very poignant and real way. People will hate your guts. And Jesus was experiencing that firsthand from the people that should have been the closest to him. His friends, literally childhood friends, were there in the synagogue that day. His family members at this point still did not believe in him apart from Mary. His brothers, his sisters thought he was nuts. When we choose to follow Jesus Christ, this is a painful thing, but we're going to experience the same rejection that Jesus went through. If we're living for Christ, if we're being bold about our faith, taking a stand for truth, there will be people that mock us, there will be people that reject us, people that want nothing to do with us, maybe family gatherings that you won't be invited to. I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. I've been to a few family gatherings. Anyway, people that you care very much about, that you would love to be close to you, will turn their backs on you because you've chosen to follow Christ. They were offended at him. Verse 3 says, the, the, the... the, work, the Greek word is skandalizo, where we get the word scandalized, a scandal. They, they were shocked. They were, they were just unbelievably offended. They could not imagine that, that this man that they knew so well would teach these things, that would claim to be God. They, they just, it just rocked the community. Jesus said in Matthew eleven six, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So many people today are still offended by Christ. The the idea that God would become flesh, that He would die for for somebody's sins, paying a penalty that that wasn't even on His shoulders, He didn't have to to do it, and he, He died for somebody? You're telling me that I'm supposed to believe this stuff? It was scandalous then, and it's still scandalous today. But Jesus says, pronounces a blessing on you if you are not offended. And so he goes on to say in verse 6, he quotes a, a proverb and he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he says, listen, listen, a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown. I, I know this. I'm coming back here and they're seeing me as an average guy, as just one of the boys. And for them to hear this message and be presented that the Messiah is here, it's too much for him. He understands that commonly a prophet would not be paid attention to, paid attention to in his hometown. Unbelief attacks the messenger. And finally, unbelief spurs, spurns the supernatural. Unbelief spurns the supernatural. Verse 5 says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
See, unbelief has no time for the miraculous. Unbelief is going to explain away the supernatural things that God does. Unbelief finds a way to rationalize, to excuse, and and to, to do away with the mighty things that God is doing. Furthermore, unbelief hinders the work of God. We saw last week that the woman with a chronic issue of blood, when she touched Jesus' garment, he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Her belief, her trust in Jesus was the key to her being healed in that situation. Faith has tremendous power, but you know what? Unbelief also has tremendous power, and it hindered and it hampered Jesus' ministry in that community. It doesn't, believe that, it doesn't mean that God's not powerful enough to get beyond that. He certainly is. He still could have done mighty works. In fact, it says, he says he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Uh, even a bad day at Jesus means that some people were getting healed. But it says he could do no mighty work there. Why? Because he didn't find receptive and fertile ground there. Just as he's going to tell the, the disciples in the next few verses that, if, listen, if people don't welcome you, if you don't have a hearer, move on. Your work there is done. Go on to the next place. Maybe you'll find somebody who's willing to listen. And Jesus is saying here, this text is telling us about Jesus, that he, he could do no mighty work because it, just, it wasn't the place. They weren't ready. They, they, they had no interest. He could, have, he could have done all kinds of amazing miracles, and they just would have yawned. They didn't, they didn't want it. Their hearts weren't ready for it. It wasn't that Jesus suddenly lost his power when he went to Nazareth, but he'd lost an audience. He'd lost hearts that were ready to hear. And this morning, I don't know where you're at in in your faith journey, but for God to be able to be at work on your heart, you need to have a, a heart that is willing to hear. If you're full of unbelief, you're, you're going to put the wall up just like the people in Nazareth did. You see, these folks, they were impressed by Jesus. Verse 2 told us that they were astonished at His teaching. They were amazed at what they were hearing. And maybe you've read the Gospels or you hear some of these messages about Jesus and you think, that is pretty cool. I mean, the demons and the pig thing was, that was kind of crazy. But being amazed, being astonished is not what God's asking for. That might be a great first step, but He's asking for faith. It's not enough to simply be impressed by Jesus. We need to trust Jesus. Furthermore, these people were familiar with Him. They'd grown up with Him. And maybe you're in the same boat. You, you, you grew up in church and you're like, Pastor, I know all these stories. I've heard them all before. I've seen the flannel graphs in Sunday school. I've watched the VeggieTales movie about them. I know it through and through. I know these stories. I got it. You know, it's not enough to simply be familiar with Jesus. It's not enough to simply know the stories. We've said all along that God is not looking for fans, he's not looking for people who, who think Jesus is cool. He's looking for people who want to follow Jesus. He's not looking for fans, as the title of that book says. He's looking for followers. And so Jesus, as he looks upon these people, 
verse 6 is just a heartbreaking verse. It says, he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. I would think that it takes a lot to amaze God. (laughs) And in fact, the word is only used one other time. Only one other time in all all the Gospels did Jesus marvel. And it was a time in Matthew chapter 8, when a centurion came, who was not even part of the believing community, uh, this was a Gentile, Roman centurion, wrote up to him and said, my daughter is sick, will you please heal her? And he says, I know, he said this to Jesus, he said, I know that you don't even have to be present, you could speak a word and heal her from right where we're standing. And the text says, Jesus marveled. He said, I've never seen such faith, even in Israel. This morning, I wonder what side of the spectrum you might be on. Is God marveling at you? Is He marveling, like with the centurion, at your trust, at your faith? Boy, wouldn't that be awesome? Because you're clinging on to hope, even in the midst of, of just circumstances that seem to, to scream, give up. Quit believing. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis. Maybe it's a, it's a family situation. And you're, you're clinging on to faith. And maybe God in heaven is up there marveling. She's hanging in there. She's continuing to trust me like Job, despite the odds, despite all your friends telling you to stop believing, like Job's wife coming, just curse God and die. Maybe everybody around you is saying, just give up, and and you're clinging on to faith, and perhaps today God is marveling because of that. Or are you in the boat with the people of Nazareth, and God is looking at the unbelief in your heart? Despite everything that you've seen in church and and, and through God's Word and in your own life, the way that God has changed people close to you, the way that God worked a miracle when you didn't see any way out of the situation and God God brought you through and and yet you still refuse to believe, you you still doubt. And Maybe this morning, your unbelief, despite everything that has been thrown in front of you, is causing God to say, wow, wow. (laughs) The story we find that Jesus experienced the hometown blues. He he went back home and he discovered people that were too familiar with him, people that they had all kinds of reasons to explain his ministry away and therefore refused to believe. But you know, the choice is yours You don't have to be like Jesus' buddies from Nazareth. You can choose to believe. One of the great things about knowing the end of the story is that many, if not all, of his family eventually came to faith in Christ. Eventually, The word got through the stubborn unbelief and the hardness of hearts, and the gospel penetrated. And maybe, just maybe today, God's word is going to have the same effect on your heart and break through if you're struggling to believe. Let's pray. Father, as I studied this passage, 
this week, it, it made me sad. It made me sad to see that there wasn't a, a happy ending, a great revival in Nazareth where the, the, the town turned from their unbelief towards faith in Christ. It made me sad to know that there are people like that in my life. There are people like that in the lives of of men and women here. Maybe there are people like that even in this room today who have just dug their heels in and just refused to believe. Oh, God, break through their hard-heartedness. Let their hearts soften to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us courage to trust you even in the face of opposition, knowing that our Savior has gone before us knowing that our Savior is worthy of our trust and that He knows exactly what it's like to be rejected, to be hated, to be doubted, to be trivialized. May Your Word give us courage this morning and may it, may it stir up faith in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.